Hello and welcome to Dream Life Best Fit Role with me, Nikki Smith. I'm a psychologist and a career and business coach. I believe everybody can love their work and I help people to use their natural strengths to transform their work life and love their job. These podcast episodes shine a light on individuals who have created their Dream Life Best Fit Role or business. I focus on how they've played to their natural strengths, those activities that energize and inspire them, and how they've conducted mini experiments to take the fear out of change and generate momentum. I'm delighted to be speaking with Moshe Lang today. Uh, In a moment, I'll get Moshe to tell us about him. I want to set the scene for you. Imagine this. The first time I met Moshe Lang was in New Zealand. And it was with my uncle Alan and they've been good friends and walking partners and yoga friends for some time by then. Now imagine this, I'm a psychology graduate. I just finished my postgraduate degree and here is Moshe Lang, a famous family therapist or the godfather of family therapy in Australia. And I got to ask him some questions, but I got surprising answers. So I, I can absolutely credit Moshe with being a mentor at that point because I had just rediscovered music at the time that I graduated from my postgraduate in psychology and I was feeling torn between the two pursuits. So I did get a surprising answer from Moshe when I asked, which direction should I go in? And do you remember what your answer was, Moshe? I hope I said go with your heart, not with your head. Well, did you, I? you did, but you actually you said, I think the first thing you said was, if I had that choice, I would choose music. Mm-hmm. And that floored me because I thought, here is someone who's had a big impact in this arena of psychology, and he would choose music. And I know in that moment, I felt like I had someone else on my team encouraging me to have the courage to be who I want to be. At the same time, my uncle Alan was asking the question, what should I be when I grow up? And so he'd been an accountant for a long time and was being forced to retire at 60, he wanted about being a guide on hikes or a yoga teacher. And I was really struck by how fantastic that choice was at 60. And in fact, we've got choices the whole way through our lives, don't we? But just to explain mm. why I suggested to you music is because I didn't have the talent in music. And I thought for me, in fact, I was asked recently if of all the things in the world that you could be, what would you choose? I said to be a singer. For me, the ability to sing. I'm a great singer in the shower when nobody can hear me. But the idea of singing with and for a public seems to me heaven on earth. I was lucky <laughs> in that moment to have met you. Can you share with me the work or life pathway that's led you to now? Yeah, we, we could take, you know, since I started, I became a psychologist in 1965, January 65, which makes it, what, 54 years. To tell the story would take uh, uh, forever. Perhaps some highlights. Uh-huh. Maybe I'll start a bit earlier, because what happened, I came to Australia from Israel. My sole purpose coming here was to study psychology. In fact, I didn't want to study psychology. I wanted to be a psychologist. And to me, being a psychologist is sitting in a room with one or more people and talking about things that really matter to people. And I've been doing it now for 54 years. And I feel 
inordinately fortunate because I'm 79. I just came back from a week of yoga in Bali. And I often test myself, you know, towards the end of the week, I say, am I looking forward to work or not? And the answer is, I'm still looking forward to work. What I feel is that I'm exceedingly privileged that if people are trusting of me and are willing to share with me their life story, I feel very, very fortunate. And work gives me profound satisfaction. And you know, it's one of life's greatest puzzles for me is, what is it about me that it gives me such satisfaction? For example, my late wife, who we were very, very close, but she would often say to me, how can you do it? Go to work day after day, listen to people whinging and complaining. And I would say, Tess, you, you, you don't get it. It's, and, and she got it, but she didn't have it too. Uh, I don't know if I've answered your question. but Yeah, I'm really keen to know your views on work. What have you observed in you and perhaps in others? The key thing for me is mm. the language. In the English language, the way we usually think of it is there is work. And what's the opposite of work? Life. Life, fun, pleasure, mm. isn't it? Mm. But it's not, for many, it's not the case. I derive great pleasure and satisfaction from work. And I've known lots of people who they are not correctly in touch with themselves because the language itself confuses them. Because work is what we are socialized to think that work is how you make a living and you suffer and then you you have satisfaction and pleasure with it. But of course, to many, work gives us meaning. Being a psychologist, I can quote the, the greatest of them all, which was Freud, who said that for happiness, we need to be satisfied in work and in love. But I'm making another point. It depends how you consider work. And those of us who are lucky, who to whom work is what we choose to do, because it's engaging and interesting, we are the fortunate one. And you know how many people have great difficulties because at one point they are told they cannot work anymore. And it's not about money. There are those who have to work in order to make a living. And in some way you learn to accept it, but it's not as fortunate as those who work because they want to work, because it gives their life satisfaction and meaning. Maybe I'll say one other thing because you reminded me of your uncle Alan in relation to work. I think as a society, we are probably doing something terrible about work. Alan was a senior partner in Pricewaterhouse and apparently they have an international agreement of the partners that come 60, whether you are good, bad or indifferent, you have to stop. This is typical of many people in very important position, the big companies. Not just that they work very, very long hours. And at one point you go from nothing or from something to nothing. And that to adjust at the age of 60, from life of work and nothing else, to nothing else but pleasure or leisure, is an insanity. Traditionally, if most human beings worked on the land, let's say, if you were a farmer, 
you continue to work and you reduce the amount of work and your children do a little bit more and you adjust the mix. But in many positions, you know, there isn't a choice and it's from one to another, from all to nothing. And to me, it's a terrible and stupid way to organize society. One of the things that allows me the pleasure of my work is because I keep adjusting the mix to suit myself. Like at the moment, I only work four afternoons a week, but those four afternoons are relatively intense. But at my stage of life, I know how to do it, so it's comfortable for me. And if I want to go on holidays, I take holidays. So maybe it's another principle about work. And this has been supported by a lot of research. One of the most important variables, I'm talking like a psychologist now, that establish job satisfaction is the person, the worker's control. When they are in charge, they control what they do, how they do it, etc. The chances that you'll find work satisfaction is much higher. I agree. Good. (laughs) (laughs) In a longitudinal study in the book Lost Connections, it also talks about being valued, being a, a really strong predictor of happiness in the workplace. And if being valued and being autonomous is not sufficient in the workplace, it's enough to trigger some anxiety, some sadness, and possibly depression. So it is absolute insanity. I agree with you, Moshe, that to go from all to nothing, you're inviting a mental health issue, really, aren't you? Inviting disaster of some sort. Yeah. And whilst you work, there is the anxiety, what would happen to you? And also whilst you work those long hours, you haven't got the time to develop hobbies and interests, let alone to have time for yourself, for your spouse, for your partner and for your children. Mm-hmm. And if I uh, design the world, it will be different. It's a big mistake not letting me control the world. <laughs> what would some of your first decisions be, early decisions be, if you were ruling the world? Myself? Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I would make it compulsory for everybody to get up in the morning. Oh, at one point or another, we'll all have to sing. I believe in the importance, and you know, there's actually good evidence for it at a physiological level too. But singing alone, singing together, everybody would have to sing, mm-hmm. and everybody would have to dance, and be probably close to nature. And maybe cultivate humor. You know, I think to find the balance between seriousness and levity mm-hmm. is one of life's great tasks. Would you join me on the four-day work week revolution or would you have a different scenario to that? I don't know what's the revolution. (laughs) I've started it in my home office, the four-day work week revolution. I've been doing it for a long time. My partner's been doing it for a bunch of years and I really encourage clients to do it as well because to uncover your ultimate dream role, you need some creative energy and you need some time to explore it and do many experiments with it. So a four-day work week allows you to have more time either to dedicate to your dream role or, as you said, to actually dedicate to yourself, to your learning, to relationships or to your health. I need to think about that, but I'll say this. It seems to me that, no, I'm certain, we are all different. And some people, you don't want to take time out. For example, if you are a, a writer and a painter, and you want to go to your studio every day and paint, 
to tell that person join the revolution and paint for only four days and for the other three days he's agitated because he can't paint I don't think it's a good idea on the other hand if you're a bricklayer and you hate every minute of it maybe if you can find a way of getting out of any work it would be better I am thinking more of office workers when I think of the mm. four-day work week because mm. again they're distance from yeah nature and it's harder for them in a five-day work week because invariably people are working longer hours so it is getting more challenging for people to fit in the exercise seeing their kids at night after a long commute that kind of thing yeah, well that's one way of looking at it but it's not a full day it's redesigning the workplace in fact I saw a woman yesterday who came to see me after she's been to her GP because she developed she's a relatively young woman and she came to see me with a very high blood pressure and she told me she sits at her desk and she has one appointment after another for 10 hours a day and her back is killing her etc etc and it seems to me it, it was very bad working environment to my way of thinking I said look it's my own experience that I work for 50 minutes and I have a room upstairs and every 50 minutes I walk downstairs I say hello to my secretary and I fill my pot of tea and walk back up but those little things sometimes make a big big difference and for example when I she said I remember she has the first appointment from 9 to 10.30 and then she has from 10.30 to and she doesn't stop and I also said to her, I would bet that if she takes 10 minutes between those appointments, chances are that her work productivity would improve. Absolutely. So, so I don't know what to say about the four day. Well, it sounds like you agree with redesigning your work week so that you do feel energized and you can connect with the meaning with your work yeah. and you can, can create space to potentially explore the top three or four decisions you would make as leader of the globe in terms of singing, dancing, nature. But I, I'll make it more personal. I've been in practice, in private practice now since 1979. and. I forgot at what stage, but after five or ten years of that, and I was in a position where I could do it, and I made a decision that from now on, every day, I'll take an hour or two, at least a day, to do something that gives me pleasure and satisfaction and is good for me. So now, for example, I have my structure of my day is that every morning, I do something which I enjoy, which I like, which is good for me, and I think it makes me also a better, in my case, psychologist. Because if you're struggling to work and your back is killing you and you're tired, you are not good. Basically, my profession is one of listening and being alert and being responsive. And you can't do it when you're overdoing it. And conversely, if you feel engage with life and you feel a sense of both joy and pleasure and sensitivity you'll be a better worker no matter what you do i love hearing that what i was thinking about was the one to two hours is absolutely brilliant and if you're listening in and thinking i don't yet have the capacity or i can't yet do that remember that even if it's a conscious choice to spend five minutes or ten minutes 
doing something pleasurable, then you've made a start. Mm. And um, as Moshe said, giving yourself that permission to take a break between appointments or one of my favourite things for clients is to walk for 10 or 15 minutes at lunchtime. So for lots of people, for whatever reason you want to stay by your desk to eat lunch, at least step up and walk around the block once or twice. You'll clock up 15 minutes of exercise. You'll clock up a break and be so much more productive. Maybe I'll say one other thing. As a clinical psychologist, I often, particularly with mothers, try to encourage them to take the break, to go for a walk or, or whatever, something that to do for themselves. But I phrase it differently, and I believe it strongly, that the best thing you can do for your children is to go for a walk, sing a song, go for a swim. Because very often, if you don't look after yourself, your capacity to look after your children or your clients is diminished. I'm putting it this way, uh, some people may hear it as manipulative because I know that to many a mother they see as their primary responsibility the children mm. and I'm using that to tell them that it is their responsibility to look after themselves. That's the way I talk to women and to men I'll say that you know if you want to drive your car you have to put petrol in and you need to service the car more regularly. I love that. I think as parents, we need to relearn how to do that. And I think that's why you're being called to say that so often. I certainly had to relearn it. And initially I felt guilt because you get so used to not prioritizing yourself. It feels unusual to do it again. And for me, that tip of the 10 minutes worked really well for me. And I would build up from that. It's almost like you need to build up your capacity to put yourself first again. But that's the paradox. Yeah. Putting yourself first <laughs> is putting your children first, as it were. I mean, I know, like, for example, it's important things that, for example, as I said, I do really look forward to every day to my work. There is one exception. The exception is if I'm physically tired and sleepy, to try and fight sleep when people are talking to you, could be a torment and a torture. But it's also simply unfair of the people who uh, trust you and rely on you and pay you money. So that, for example, to make sure that I don't turn up to an appointment sleepy is looking after myself. But clearly at the same time, it's looking after the people who come to see me. I wondered about touching on something we've talked a bit about before, where being a psychologist is enjoyable, but studying for it isn't necessarily that enjoyable. <laughs> is there anything you want to share on that topic? Gee, it's a difficult one. Look, I think first of all I'll say this. It's a long time since I have studied psychology. So since then it's from what I hear from other people and uh, I don't, I'm not in touch with it as much. But my impression is this. I'll speak for myself. When I studied psychology, I thought it would be about people and life. And to my uh, dismay, it was about rats and mice and statistics, etc., etc. Maybe I'll, I'll use it in a way of, of a metaphor. I've just been to a yoga retreat. And at the end of the retreat, the teacher invited us to make comments. And I praised her and I said the following. I said that the, the retreat was a wonderful retreat because... 
She's clearly a very competent teacher, yoga practitioner and teacher. She's confident in her yoga. She knows her stuff, but she's sufficiently confident to also allow herself to be humorous, to deviate from the curriculum, to make it fun, joy, and humorous. And the two are not contradictory. They are enhancing each other. And in a sense, if I design the teaching of psychology and its practice, I'll start with the assumption that to teach it and practice it, you need to achieve enough security. And the index of security is that you could be light and joyous. You see, when people come to see me, they come because they have often very, very serious problems. And one of the ways I can help them is also by helping them to find ways to once enjoy talking with me. And there is a, it can be a pleasure if people connect with each other well to talk about painful and serious ways in a way that it's mutually satisfying and taking a break from a serious conversation and laughing and laughing at ourselves and each other and, uh, and experiencing the joy of having good conversation and good human connectedness. Um, hearing you talk, it made me think of the weekend workshop with Moshe on family systems theory. So this is when I had a counselling practice and I was fascinated with family systems theory. And I wonder, is there a way that you could share some of those principles now? Because they're so darn, yes. u- they're so darn useful. That sort of translating the principle of family therapy to the general public. Number one, perhaps most important is to look at whoever and whatever it is within context. That's what the most important part of family therapy is, it's the context. And to give an example, a couple comes to see me and the wife is terribly upset and she's actually worried that her husband may be cheating on her. And when we talk much more, I discover that in fact he's terribly, terribly stressed at work. And he does not tell her. Why? Because he doesn't want to worry her. And why is he like that? Because he grew up in a family in which the principle for a man was to be strong and protective of his wife and not tell her about And maybe also because he's feeling embarrassed and ashamed that he's struggling and he wants to appear strong and competent. So, in this case, to understand what may be the couple's difficulties, you have to broaden the context of what you look at. And in the case that I described, work is part of the explanation. Mm. But even then I added already there was another context, and that's the context of men in our society, but also this specific man in his own upbringing. So coming back, principle number one is contextualize the issue, no matter what it is. Perhaps principle two could be this, that very often we caught in interactive cycle. What's a typical one? Father complains that his wife is overprotective of the children. But if you listen to her, what will she tell you? I'm overprotective because you are underprotective. And they are caught in an interactive cycle in which they perpetuate each other's behavior. 
and sometimes they also cause it to escalate. And it's very, very important principle to always think to yourself, is there an inter interactive pattern, an interactive cycle that explains it? Have you got a story perhaps between an employee and a manager? Yes. What happened, I remember a couple comes to see me. Basically, as a result of their work with me, the husband realized that he, if he listens to his wife better, things improve in their relationship and also uh, with the children. And then he comes back and he says, can I continue to come and see you? Because I want to talk about my work situation. And um, he was very busy uh, bossing. He had quite a big company. He had, from my point of view, two issues. One, he, was, he wasn't a good listener. And two, he wasn't also very trusting of his... And he ran everything like a very, very, very tight ship. And as a result also, he had very little time to himself. And I encouraged him to relax a little bit. And I remember what he did. I asked him also, has he got other interests apart from work? And I remember clearly that one of them was, he loved flying and he hasn't done any flying for a long time. And he started, he took up flying. But to his absolute surprise and eventual delight, the more he was away from work, the more successful business was. And the way I understood it, I guess he understood it too. He had really very good people working for him and with him. And they were dying for the opportunity to prove to him and to themselves their own ability. And when he made himself a bit rarer, they did just that. So we all know that you could be over-controlling or under-controlling or inappropriately. But in his case, his capacity to relax, to listen and to let go helped him both in the marriage and as a father and eventually also as an employer in a big company. Uh, many of the people I work with, I help them to transition out of one job and into another. Sometimes when the dream role is so fantastic it's going to take either a bit of time for them to build up the confidence to transition to it or we need to test it out with a bunch of mini experiments to make sure it's for them we look for a bridge job solution so i look help them look for a job that will tie them over from here to there and i think what's interesting for me is no matter which transition it is whether it's from a job they hate into one they will like or love, there is stress involved. And again, even when it's a positive change, there is some stress. And again, from that family therapy systems training I received, I really liked the take on what transitions mean in terms of your well-being and in terms of the energy that they take. Can you share a bit about that? Yes, I'm thinking about yesterday. I already started saying something about this woman who saw me with high blood pressure. She remembered that over the last few years, there was only once that she felt good at work and the blood pressure and the tension was not there. And that is when she actually told something, somebody, she let her, let her hair down and she spoke forcefully and clearly about her own needs. And what I said to her was that maybe she's in crisis now, but also it may be a wonderful opportunity for her 
not necessarily to change her job, which she is thinking of, and I'm encouraging her to think, but before she gives it up, to see whether she could use the opportunity to actually go back to her place of work and start speaking with much greater clarity about what she needs and what she wants. And the more we explored it, the more likely it became that if she did that and she brought about the changes that she wants, other people would benefit. It's very rare in a family or in a, in a workplace that if you are suffering, that everybody else is doing fantastically well. Usually we are hurting each other rather than and uh, the change usually benefits everybody. And that maybe that's another principle of, if you wish, family therapy, mm. but of course not just family therapy, that we are mutually dependent. It's very rare that there is a husband who is perfectly happy and a wife who is miserable. We are able to make each other happy or miserable. That doesn't mean in equal proportion. I really enjoyed your answer, but my question was a bit more around... So I remember in the training saying, look, if we are in this network, in this system, then a transition or a change affects more than just one person. So, for example, when you get married, when you have kids, when you leave a job, when you start a job, if there's a death or a divorce, it affects a lot of people. And it just understanding for me I'm quite interested in that energy component of how much energy it takes to walk through a transition well again some transitions we are prepared for the transition and we do it easily like the example that we talked earlier the transition from work to not work for me I imagine hope at least would be much easier because I'm transitioning all the time. I'm just changing the mix and changing the proportion. Mm. But if you work 12 hours a day, every day till the age of 60, and then you are transitioning to retirement, it could be awful. Mm. So not all transitions are the same. Mm. Once upon a time when people got married, you left your parents' home, and you got married, so the transition was huge. Now you live together for 12 years before you get married, or etc. So the transition may be almost unnoticeable. Mm. So. so for example, when a, if a client starts a job, even that they're looking forward to, and it's a really positive environment, it takes more energy yeah. in that transition period. And I find that really interesting because I think we've got this myth in our head that if it's a positive change, we'll glide through it. But actually it can take time to get used to that new environment, time to adjust, time to get known, time for people to understand you, time for you to understand the role. And that all takes a bit of energy. From my point of view, you cannot generalize. Uh, mm. I have known untold number of people who have changed and say, I'm in heaven. You know, it's mm. been wonderful. And others who have to struggle and struggle for a long time before they, even though it's what they want, it's a struggle. Any mixture in between. Do you have any other favourite hints on helping people to live their best life? Look, um, the, the, the question, uh, I'm a bit worried about, you know, sounding uh, an all, and <laughs> it's too, too big a question. Too big a question. Uh, but uh, I'll answer it for what it's worth and say, I think all of us have both a head and a heart. 
and we need to listen to to both. The skill of life is to know when to listen to the head and when to listen to the heart. And the good news is that when you get older, your head and your heart get closer to each other because your neck gets more pressed. Uh, <laughs> so think about that and think that the, even aging has its own advantages. And one of them is your head and your heart will get closer. I think another one of your special gifts is helping people with relationships. Have you got any favorite hints around optimizing your, you know, your closest relationship? Look, again, you always worry about saying banalities, uh, but probably we all know that uh, one of the most important things in a relationship is to have good communication. Good communication means try to be open with each other, but it also means sometimes to know when to speak and when to shut up, when to speak with seriousness and when to speak with some levity. What about the power of listening? I think, yes, I think probably that may be a very important thing to say. At the end of the day, probably the most important thing that, say, I as a therapist can do is listen and listen well. And um, But that applies to everyone. That's the most important thing that a parent can do, that a lover can do, that an employer can do etc etc and some people make the mistake that listening is you either listen or not and if you really reflect on your own life anybody you me or our listeners they'll realize that very often you sometimes remember that there was somebody years back who listened to you and heard you in a way that nobody has ever heard you before uh, this level of listening um, and I think one of life's most important human capacity is to listen and listen well and listen to the various voices within the one person too because you know sometimes I could listen to your logic but I can also hear underneath the logic the pain or the joy or the hesitation and I'll say one more thing. Until now, I talk on the basis of one-to-one. But as a family therapist, when I can also cultivate in the family a conversation in which I listen to them, but they also listen to each other, that very often it can be the most transforming thing in people's lives. The truth of it is that people with great intimacy often don't listen and talk to each other about some of the most important things in their life. If you talk to children, the number of children who would tell you that after their parents are no longer alive, for example, how much they wish that they would have had a certain conversation. And to have certain conversations, say in my consulting room, where people are able to say and listen to each other uh, could be and is often life transforming. And I'll say one other thing here. People often quote Freud who said that he described psychoanalysis as the talking cure. Whilst I agree with it, I would phrase it differently. 
Maybe I don't agree with it. I'm having a both each way. The cue is not in the talking because then you could talk to the walls. Um, the the cue is in talking to somebody who listens and has a way of communicating that he or she heard and give you back what they heard. Then it's a complete that you'll tell me something and I usually would say, Nikki, the way I understand what you're telling me is and you say not necessarily in those formal ways, and you'll feel, yes, he got me, really understood me the way I've not been understood before. And I'll, set, I'll tell two little anecdotes, mm. because they are, I think, important. One is, I remember years and years I was a beginning therapist, and this young man came to see me, and as a result of the first interview, there were huge changes in his life. And when I said to him, what was it that helped you to change so much? And he said, you don't understand it. He said, I remember he studied law at Monash. And he said to me, I had a bully of a father who told me, and everybody just told me all my life what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And you simply said to me, what do you think? And he says, it was the first time that somebody in what he regarded as a position of authority, instead of telling him what to do, actually ask him, what do you think? And listen to his answer. And to him it was a life changing because he has not experienced it before. Now the other thing about, and recently I met a man who also I saw professionally many years ago. And he said to me this, I don't know if I know how to put it correctly, but what you did for me that helped me so much was you listened to my pain. But he apologized because he said he, he thought he did not say it properly. And I said to him, tell me, can you think of a better way of describing it? And then I said to him, to tell you the truth, I haven't got, and I'm telling you, I don't think there is. Maybe I'm wrong, but as far as I'm concerned, this is as good a description from my point of view of what I hope I try to do for you or for other people. But I'm saying it for another reason. And that is that one of the dangers of the professional world is that instead of making those who are the consumer of our services feeling more competent, more skilled, we de-skilling them. And that's what worried me about it. He expressed it beautifully as a writer, but he thought there was something inadequate about his description mm -hmm. because he's talking to a psychologist and you need to find another way of saying things. And that's another thing about you asked me before about teaching psychology. Mm -hmm. I'll teach psychologists to use ordinary language and give any psychologist who uses fancy language shock treatment. <laughs> I love it. Oh. Oh, if any of you are feeling inspired to listen, I'm going to share another tip uh, of how I apply this at home. Now, I, I give my clients incredible active listening skills, I believe, and guess who gets second best sometimes, my husband and my kids. So I've, I've actually told them to tell me when I'm not listening and to tell me if I cut them off. 
and that works really well and they love telling me off and then we laugh about it but are they allowed to praise you too or only to tell you oh that's the next prompt to give them <laughs> but also what i learned was that i'll never forget having two kids under four a counseling practice coming home after seeing five clients and my husband wanting to debrief from the day because he'd worked and parented clearly and um, I remember coming up with this idea and it works so well, which was I would say to him, I'm all yours for 15 minutes. And so because part I felt so torn, part of me wanted to listen to him, part of me really did not want to listen to anyone else that night. And by saying, oh, like, I'm all yours for 15 minutes, and I, I really did my best to listen, not interrupt, not talk over, not comment, not fix just listen for 15 minutes and when our kids were tiny and that connection time is really important it worked really well in fact i might reinstate that <laughs> the 15 minute rule that was excellent so we don't have to be become masterful listeners for hours at a time overnight just that five minutes or 15 minutes is really powerful isn't it yeah but it's also look I, I, when you asked me about family therapy before mm. i said it's about context mm. and what's the context it's happened in the most typical more typical example it happened to me it happened for a while my late wife was at home and I went to work. When I come back from work, after listening to people and talking, the last thing I want to is to do some more talking and some more listening. And she's been home all day with the little kids. She wants to talk. So our context, our needs are very, very different. And it's potential time of conflict and frustration. Hopefully, if you at least realize that the context is such and the needs are different, hopefully you can negotiate a, a way of dealing with it, with it that works for, for everybody. Mm. And that's a, a simple example mm. of, the, of context. Yeah. And you can, in fact, ask point blank, can't you? What do you need now? Rather than second, we're guessing, making assumptions or avoiding. You may ask, or you both know, and you you deal with it the best way. And sometimes I'll come home, and in spite of the fact that I don't want to listen because I've been listening all day, I put up with it because. <laughs> and sometimes I say, "Look, can I use the word bugger?" Sure. Uh, I'm bugger. <laughs> Would you please excuse me? I need to. I don't know what. Do something else. Do yeah. something else. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the last story I'd love you to share, it's one of my favorite ones, about you discovering yoga. I promised myself as a young man, I was born in, I'll tell the story, I was born in Israel and the Prime Minister of Israel, who was called in Israel the old man, was taught to stand on his head by a man, by the same name as, first name as mine, Moshe Feldenkrais. Mm. And this old man, Ben-Goyon, was stood on his head. And I think it was then that I decided one day, when I'm old, or maybe, I don't know when, I'll start doing yoga. And when I turned 50, I decided it's time, for, if I don't do it now, I'll probably never do it. How long do, am I going to wait? So I gave myself the gift of, of yoga. I remember that uh, I turned up to class wonderful teacher by the name of Steve Berry, and I like sometimes to give credit to people, in Coffee School of Yoga, and probably the class took two, two and a half hours, and I remember when the class finished, 
to my absolute amazement, I was upset, already finished. I became very, very keen and enjoyed it a great deal. And I remember one stage or another, my late wife saying to me, I admire your discipline. And I said to her, Tess, you don't tell a, a kid who keeps eating chocolate that he has lots of discipline. I did it because I really enjoyed it and I continue until today. And uh, it's a great gift. And I think ideally all of us need to find interest and hobbies such as yoga. It does not have to be yoga. And it helps us in our marriages, in family life uh, and at work. It's interesting, I read a study not long ago about tension reduction thing and they compare I think three or four groups for memory. One group was doing gardening, another one I think it was yoga or mindful meditation and the third one I forgot even. And all groups, and there was a control group that continued with whatever they were doing. All the experimental groups so-called benefited and there was a reduction in the tension in this case. But from my point of view, the most important part of the finding was that if you compare it within groups, the people who did best was the people who enjoyed it. In other words, if it's a choice between gardening or yoga or swimming or tai chi or uh, playing music or singing, choose the one that gives you the greatest pleasure, there's a better chance that you'll persevere with it and also maybe find something that your friends like so you can do it with them because that would also increase the likelihood that you'll persevere. I think that's the perfect note to end on and that's the invitation to you. Do you have something in your life that is that pleasure or joy or fun? And if not, try one of the ones we mentioned. <laughs> Thank you, Moshe. Thanks for listening. Two things I'd like to mention. Firstly, if you're keen to boost your happiness at work, then head on over to www.nikkismith.net.au, which is n-i-k-k-i-s-m-i-t-h.net.au, and sign up for your starter kit. I share tips in there that are easy to implement and are pure gold. Secondly, if you crave a new work role and have no idea what to do, or lots of ideas but don't know where to start, then head on over and check out the 7-Step Career Change online program. This is an awesome system I use to help people create their dream life best fit role, which is a role that matches their strengths, interests and lifestyle needs. It will move you from feeling fed up, unsure and unconfident to clear, inspired and motivated in six weeks. Plus, if you want to hear more stories like this one, please subscribe and spread the word. Till next time.